This is Guns and Butter. So these 96 families had a case in uh, the, the District of New York, and the, the main defendant was this Israeli company created by El Al executives and Israeli intelligence executives uh, a few years before. And this company was uh, uh, responsible for 9-11 because it, it had uh, been in charge of the airport security and most importantly, passenger screening at Boston Airport and other airports on 9-11. And so they would have to explain they would, they would have to answer questions. Um, and this company is very closely tied to Israeli intelligence. And um, in the court proceedings, the uh, judge, Alvin K. Hellerstein, dismissed this company, this Israeli company, from the proceedings. So they were excused. They were, they were off the hook. And um, this company, ICTS, has passenger screening operations and um, airport security operations around the world to this day. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, exposing the ongoing cover-up of 9-11. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He spent three years traveling extensively throughout Europe and the Middle East. He studied Egyptian, Biblical Hebrew, and Norwegian at the University of Oslo. He is a graduate of the University of California in History with an emphasis on Israel-Palestine. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. His travels and studies of German, Spanish, Norwegian, Swedish, Hebrew, and Arabic languages have helped him analyze international politics and events. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, Solving 9-11, The Articles, and The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. His newest book, out on September 11, 2019, is Solving 9-11, The Articles, Volume 2. Christopher Bolin, welcome again. Thank you. Nice to be with you. How would you characterize your newest book, Solving 9-11, The Original Articles, Volume 2? Well, it is the continuation of original articles that I've written about 9-11, uh, following the publication of uh, the original articles in 2012. So volume two contains articles that I've written about 9-11, my research articles and essays, uh, from 2012 spring through 2019 when it was published in um, September. In terms of what's new in your 9-11 research, your latest mm -hmm. book, Solving 9-11, The Original Articles, Volume 2, begins with an in-depth essay, 9-11 and Alvin Krongard, Israel's agent in the CIA, that takes a look at A.B. Buzzy Krongard, who, on 9-11, was the executive director of the CIA. At the time, George Tennant was director of Central Intelligence. How significant is the position of CIA executive director, the position that Alvin Krongard held? Yeah, well, it, it no longer exists. Um, it was the number three position, they said. Uh, he was the executive director of the CIA, which meant that he oversaw the day-to-day -day operations of the agency. Um, as compared to Tenet, who he was an advisor to, 
he had been an advisor to uh, George Tenet for years prior to 9-11. Um, and uh, he, he was the guy, Buzzy Cronengord was the guy who uh, saw the actual operations of the CIA. So he knew what was going on. You point out that as executive director of Central Intelligence on 9-11, Krongard would have been aware of the drills scheduled for that day. Mm-hmm. Yes, and one of the uh, drills that the CIA was uh, very much involved in was the, uh, the plane into building operation where a plane took off from Dulles Airport, a virtual plane, so to speak, and it flew into uh, the National Reconnaissance Office in Chantilly, Virginia. Um, and this was an operation that was being done by the CIA. The CIA, this is the, the National Reconnaissance Office is, is, is closely connected to the CIA. And so he certainly, uh, Alvin uh, Buzzy Krongord was uh, aware of these uh, plane into building drills and the uh, other drills that were going on that day involving aircraft. You write that at CIA, Krongard was engaged in setting up CIA venture capital firm Incuit, or Incutel, as it is better known. What do we know about Incutel? Well, Incutel was a, uh, an agency that was supposed to keep the uh, CIA abreast of computer technology. And uh, that's what uh, Krongord was serving as a counselor for this. And so that these computer companies and, and software companies uh, and new technologies that were coming along uh, were being obtained by the CIA. And it was, a, it was their fingerprint or their um, having their finger on the pulse of, of new computer technology. At CIA, what involvement did Krongard have in the 9-11 wars in Afghanistan and Iraq? Well, um, he was uh, on the board of directors of a company called um, Blackwater. And uh, his brother... Uh, Cookie Krongord was um, during congressional hearings. He was involved in the investigation to see if there any any uh, wrongdoing on the part of Blackwater, and he pretended that he didn't know that his brother Alvin Buzzy was on the board of on the board of Blackwater during these congressional hearings. So it's a, it's a lot of um, nepotism and covering up for each other. So then Alvin. Cronegard's uh, brother was at the Department of Justice. Is that what you're saying? Uh, he was Inspector General of the State Department. His, his name was Howard Howard Cronegard. Uh, Prior to consulting with and joining the CIA, A.B. Cronegard was employed for almost 30 years at Alex Brown and Company in Baltimore, America's oldest investment bank, becoming Chairman and Chief Executive Officer in 1991. What evidence is there that the massive put options on United Airlines prior to the 9-11 attacks were placed by Alex Brown and company and that Krongard had anything to do with those puts? Yeah, well, it was, uh, it was in the a footnote in the 9-11 Commission report, and um, it came out later in October of 2001 that um, Alex Brown had, had been... Uh, the company that had placed a significant number of these put options on United Airlines. Um, but because they said that this uh, institution, uh, Alex Brown, had no conceivable ties to Al-Qaeda, 
it was um, it was not pursued. But um, Alvin Krongord had been, the, as you said, the um, he had been the CEO of of uh, Alex Brown after he had joined in 1971. He became the CEO in 1991, and then he was um, uh, consultant to the CIA directors uh, Woolsey from 93 to 95, and Tenet from 97 to 2004. So he, he played very important roles um, at the CIA and at Alex Brown. And Alex Brown was also uh, very deeply involved in financing and uh, doing initial public offerings and things for Israeli military intelligence companies that were engaged in this high technology you were talking about before. And then, according to your article, um, Alex Brown was... Uh, either bought out by or merged with Bankers Trust, and then, um, uh, I believe, acquired by Deutsche Bank. So did Deutsche Bank own these entities when the puts were uh, put on United Airlines? Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, they were a um, subsidiary of Deutsche Bank, and um, they created this, this company... That, that became Bankers Trust, went into Bankers Trust. Alex Brown went into Bankers Trust. Bankers Trust went into um, uh, BT Alex Brown. And they, they, they became part of, of the uh, Deutsche Bank. And Mayo Shattuck was in charge of Deutsche Bank, and he had, he had been part of this operation with Krongord to uh, merge uh, their company, Alex Brown, with Deutsche Bank. And um, there's a lot of strange things happen, of course, at Deutsche Bank, uh, during the attack, when the attack began, um, some super user came into their system and downloaded all of their data and files um, in a few seconds. It just took over the entire system, and, and they, they were not able to do anything about it. And the following day, on September 12, 2001, Mayo Shattuck resigned from Alex Brown and from Deutsche Bank. Yeah, that is very curious. And then, uh, doesn't A.B. Krongard uh, talk also about the revolving door, or basically that Wall Street and these investment banks are, are part of the CIA, that that's a revolving door, that people go back and forth between intelligence and Wall Street, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said that if you go back to the CIA's origins during World War II in the Office of Strategic Services, he says the whole OSS was really nothing but Wall Street bankers and lawyers. Yeah, that's right. What sorts of projects uh, was Buzzy Krongard working on during his many years at Alex Brown and Company? Well, like I said, one of the things that's very interesting for me is that, uh, for my thesis about Israeli involvement in 9-11, is that Alex Brown in the 1990s, under Buzzy Krongard as CEO, um, became uh, a leading U.S. partner, finance partner for Israeli as I said, military companies that were um, spawning. They spawn these companies and they want to start them, bring them to the United States and they, they need financing. And, uh, and then in 1996, Krongord and Mayo Shattuck went to Israel on a three-day trip to meet Shimon Peres and to develop this connection um, of financing for Israeli companies. And at that time, in 1996, Alex Brown was the financial advisor for a company called Cytex, S-C-I-T-E-X, uh, an Israeli company closely connected to Israeli intelligence and involved in 
The general manager of Cytex was a man named Yair Shamir, who is the son of Yitzhak Shamir. So, um, you know, they, they were, they were uh, uh, involved in a lot of public offerings and financial advice for Israeli companies, uh, specifically Israeli military in intelligence companies that were spun off from uh, Unit 8200, for example, military software companies, what have you. Um, and and that's what that's what Alex Brown was doing. So um, they have a close connection to Israel, close connection to the CIA, and and in the middle of all of it is um, Buzzy Krongard. Do you know of any reason that Alvin Krongard would have any personal interest in Israeli companies? Well, uh, uh, Buzzy Krongard, uh, although he has a, a name that looks. Uh, you know, Danish or something like that. His uh, his father, I think, changed the name from uh, a Polish Jewish name. And uh, Buzzy Krongard's uh, uh, roots are are a Jewish, and so that that uh, that could play a role in the fact that he worked very closely with Israel um, while he was at Alex Brown. In your essay, Ari Fleischer and 9/11, Israel's point man in the White House. You write about how Ari Fleischer, George W. Bush's press secretary on 9-11, crafted Bush's response to the terror atrocity of 9-11. What mm -hmm. all went into Bush's message to the country on that fateful day? Well, in that article about Ari Fleischer, you know, you see him, he was with, he was with George Bush the entire day. He was with George Bush while the attacks were going on in the Florida classroom, and then they, they retired to a, uh, an office, and, and he, he was helping the president to craft his response to the attacks from the very beginning. And you remember that the, uh, George Bush's speech to the nation that day, uh, that night, he said that we were attacked by radical Islamic terrorists because they um, detest or they are against the freedoms that we have. They 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 are attacking our freedoms, and um, this was all this was all crafted for him by Ari Fleischer. And my question is, how did Ari Fleischer and um, George Bush how did they how did they have any idea who was responsible for 9/11 when there was no evidence. There had been no investigation. For all we knew, these were just two planes that flew into buildings. But um, what happened is that, um, of course, before the buildings even fell that day, before all three towers had collapsed, Ehud Barak, the Israeli former prime minister and chief of Israeli military intelligence, appeared on BBC television and uh, Sky News in Britain. And he was in the studio of BBC and he gave this interpretation of what happened um, on 9-11. And he basically, of course, blamed radical Islamic terrorism, specifically uh, Osama bin Laden, and said that now is the time for the United States to engage in a concrete operational war on terror. And this, of course, became the takeaway from the attacks. This, this Israeli interpretation from the head of Israeli military intelligence, Ehud Barak, on BBC World Television, became the interpretation that the George Bush administration and nations around the world uh, took for the truth. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Exposing the Ongoing Cover-Up of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. 
This is Guns and Butter. Who is Ari Fleischer's brother, Michael Paul Fleischer, and what were his ties to Israel? Well, this is where it gets very interesting. Ari Fleischer was, as I said, the uh, head of the press department for George Bush, press secretary. And um, his brother, Michael Fleischer, was uh, working for an Israeli-owned company in New Jersey called Bogan Communications. And Bogan specializes in um, voicemail systems as well as something called Unified Messaging Digital Voice Processing Systems. And it was, it was run by a guy named um, Eitan, uh, let's see, Yaron Eitan. He was the chairman of Bogan Communications. Now, Yaron Eitan was also um, a partner in a company called SCP Partners, um, in which Ehud Barak was another partner. And this was a U.S.-based company. I think it was in um, Pennsylvania. And, and so that, when, that meant that whenever Michael, Michael was the president, Michael Fleischer, Ari Fleischer's brother, was the president of this company, um, he was serving under these high-level Israeli military people, Yaron Aitan, the uh, head of the company, the, the chairman, was um, from the Israeli Air Force. He had spent years as a pilot and other, other high-level positions in the Air Force. So that Michael Fleischer was working directly for people involved in Israeli voicemail systems. And, and this, is, this, place, this, this gives us some idea that this may, be involved, this may be the people who are involved in producing those telephone calls, um, the fake telephone calls or whatever telephone calls were faked on 9-11 between the planes and the ground. Well, what happened is that after the war began in Iraq in 2003, Michael Fleischer left his position at this uh, Israeli company, Bogan, in New Jersey, and went to Iraq. And in Iraq, he was serving as the head of the privatization um, for Iraq. He was the head of the private sector development in occupied Iraq. So under the, under the uh, uh, command of uh, Jerry Bremer. So when we had this occupation, this very uh, complete U.S. occupation of Iraq, Michael Fleischer was in charge of privatizing and private sector development in Iraq. And his brother um, had been, of course, the press secretary for, for Bush. Again, this is this kind of connection of these people. It's not nepotism, but it's like family involvement in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's very much like the Kagan family at the State Department. The, the Kagans had, were behind the, the, the push in Iraq. They were behind the... Uh, the, the call for war against Iraq. They were behind the Project for a New American Century. Um, they're the one. Their family is the one that started it. They're behind uh, the overthrow of the government in Kiev in Ukraine uh, a decade later. And again, it's 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 like these families who who seem to have um, kind of like fiefdoms in the in the administration or at the State Department. What is Chabad Lubavitch? Chabad Lubavitch is a uh, uh, conservative or orthodox um, Jewish organization, which is uh, very strict and very um, pro-Jew and also anti-Goy, anti-non-Jew. It's an organization that has racist uh, uh, teachings, undertones, that would not be tolerated by any other sort of uh, religious group to be so openly uh, racist. 
But um, Ari Fleischer was a member of that. Uh, he was a member of the Chabad, and he's very tight with his, his Lubavitch rabbi in Washington, D.C., a man named Levi Shem Tov. Fleischer was the co-president of the Chabad Capital Jewish Forum and had received a, an award, a leadership award from the American Friends of Lubavitch in October 2001. And, you know, Chabad is also um, reportedly to be a criminal organization with ties to Mossad. Um, in, in, so it's, 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 a, it's spelled C-H-A-B-A-D. But um, what, it, what the great rabbi of Chabad, you know, Mendel Schneerson, taught his followers was that Jewish people are an extension of God and Gentiles are destined to serve the Jews. What is International Consultants on Targeted Security, or ICTS? Well, ICTS is the company, International Consultants on Targeted Security, based in Holland, that was the uh, prime defendant in the tort litigation in 9-11. That is that this is the litigation of the 96 families who wanted to know who was responsible for 9-11 and had not taken um, the, the money from the uh, government compensation fund when it was first offered. They chose to sue. So these 96 families had a case in uh, the, the District of New York, and the, the main defendant was this Israeli company created by El Al executives and Israeli intelligence executives uh, a few years before. And this company was uh, uh, responsible for 9-11 because in, it, it had uh, been in charge of the airport security and, most importantly, passenger screening at Boston Airport and other airports on 9-11. Um, and so they would have to explain how the hijackers got on the plane and men they were carrying box cutters and, and they would have to you know uh, show footage or show uh, video footage showing these men getting on the plane. They would, they would have to answer questions. Um, and this company is very closely tied to Israeli intelligence. And um, in, the, in the court proceedings, the uh, judge, Alvin K. Hellerstein, dismissed this company, this Israeli company, from the proceedings. Um, and their subsidiary is called Huntley USA. Huntley USA is what you would probably have seen at the airport when you talk to these guys, um, security passenger screening people. Um, they were allowed to... Uh, they were excused from the case simply because he said that, you know, you're just the parent company. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't see why you should be here. So they were excused. They were, they were off the hook. And um, this company, ICTS, has passenger screening operations and, and um, airport security operations around the world to this day. Also, with regard to ICTS, what were the Beitar brigades in China? Well, the, the Beitar brigades were... Uh, from World War II time, in China, there were people in eastern China, Shanghai and Harbin. There were um, a lot of Jews had gone there, uh, people like Ehud Olmert's family and others, and they had um, uh, they were they were radical Zionists, and they were trained. They were being trained by the Japanese uh, military in uh, terrorism, and the Beitar is like the uh, uh, youth brigades or the, the the black shirts of the of the Irgun, and after the war, World War II, uh, they relocated to Palestine and joined the uh, Irgun militia and were involved in the attacks on uh, Palestinian villages, what have you. 
Now, how, how do the Baytar Brigades relate to ICTS, or is there a relationship? Well, the thing is, is that the Baytar in, um, in Shanghai and in, in China had people like Ehud Olmert's family involved in it, uh, but there were other people uh, like Matthew Nassim, who was uh, a partner with the Harel brothers at ICTS, and he had also been trained in the, in the Baytar Brigades in China. Um, so you have this connection, this Shanghai connection to ICTS. And it also includes a man named Shaul Eisenberg, who was Mossad's super agent in China and Japan um, starting in the late 1930s. And he had been involved with the Beitar Brigades um, in China. And, and he had also been uh, an advisor to the Japanese imperial government during World War II. And what's interesting is that Eisenberg is connected to the 9-11 story in several ways. Um, one of them is that he, he created a company called Atwell Security, which obtained the security contract for the World Trade Center, the anti-terrorism world uh, contract, in 1987. And this contract was obtained by two men, um, uh, Zvi Malkin and Shalom Bendor, Avram Shalom Bendor. And these two men were high-level agents of the Mossad, veteran agents, men who had basically retired from the agency but were doing a little bit of extra work in their retirement. And uh, Eisenberg was the owner of the company that was meant to get the security contract for the World Trade Center. So this is a connection between – this shows that Shaul Eisenberg, this like Mr. Mega Israeli Mossad guy in China, is involved in, um, in 9-11 in, in, in – being the man behind the companies um, like ICTS and um, uh, Atwell Security of Tel Aviv that were part of the 9-11 operation. What is the Odigo instant messaging system and a feature called PeopleFinder? Uh, BuddyFinder, I think it's called, PeopleFinder. But it's, uh, Odigo was an uh, instant messaging service that could be could be used on a variety of platforms, whether you used a Blackbird or, or a Blueberry or an or a email, what have you. And on 9-11, it had sent messages, um, warning messages, about the events at the World Trade Center were going to transpire in a few hours' uh, time. And so that um, these Odigo warnings, I call them, uh, apparently or evidently were uh, responsible for saving the lives of some 4,000 Israelis who were thought to have been at the world or should have been at the World Trade Center or the Pentagon on 9-11. The buddy system works that you can choose uh, characteristics that you want to send this message to. Uh, you could choose that I want to send it to uh, anybody who's an Israeli, uh, speaks Hebrew, send the message in Hebrew is a good way to do that. And, and you, you choose the characteristics that you want to send it to, and it sends to everybody on the, everybody on the, on the application that fits those characteristics. And then uh, does the Odigo instant messaging system include filters? Well, I guess that's what you've been talking about. And mm -hmm. online privacy. Is this a private uh, online service? Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a private uh, service that was an Israeli operation, an Israeli application. And it was obviously used very much by Israelis because the, uh, the warnings that were found uh, were reported in Israel first. There were people at the company who had received these warnings um, about the attacks at the World Trade Center. 
And the, the vice president of the company said that the attacks were precise to the minute. Then the FBI went over there and, and wanted to get more information about it, but we never got any more reporting um, in the American media about this uh, Odigo messaging system. Do you know whether or not Odigo still exists? Uh, Odigo was part of Converse, became part of Converse, and it was, um, I think that it's probably merged into another company. That's what happens with most of these companies. I, I've written other more extensive articles about Odigo and uh, their relationship to Converse and the relationship to the, um, the fugitive who um, ran away to uh, Africa, to uh, Southwest Africa. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a complicated web. But um, these, these uh, Israelis came over from uh, military intelligence and created this company uh, a few years prior to 9-11. And, and that's connected to a company called Converse. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Exposing the Ongoing Cover-Up of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Right, and there's, there's these companies, Converse and uh, Amdocs. What are these mm-hmm. companies? Well... That's a good question. What what they really are 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 Israeli companies that are spawned from either Israeli military intelligence or from a, a, a unit of the Israeli military called Unit Eight Two Zero Zero, which is Israel's largest. It's the largest part of the Israeli army, and it, its focus is on cyber technology, computers, uh, software, and applications that can be used. And what they do is they, they, they find one that works really well. They, they modify it or spawn it, bring it to the United States, for example, and start a company. And that's what we were talking about before with Buzzy Krongard. Buzzy Krongard would be uh, one, of the, one of the financial institutions at, at Alex Brown who would finance these things, who would, who would provide funding and, and advice. Um, this, is, this is not unlike what we see with uh, Promise Software. Uh, and how Promise Software was was basically uh, a software that was stolen, if you will, from the United States, uh, taken to Israel, modified, um, and created into a spy software, an enterprise spy software, that was then uh, marketed and sold to countries and, and banks around the world, which gave the super user in Israel, in Tel Aviv, the ability to know what was going on in that company or in that, in that network in real time. And Promise was also the um, upgraded version with the back door, et cetera, was also installed on uh, U.S. military computers, wasn't it? Yes, it was, it, was, uh, it was originally called Promise, which stood for Prosecutor's Management Information System. Um, but Rafi Eitan uh, was able to get a copy of it and bring it back to Israel, and then they modified it. They, they moved it around, and it became something called P-Tech. Uh, that's one of the derivatives of the Promise software. And it was used in 9-11 um, at the FAA and, and on military computers and government computers. Um, and it gave, again, with the back door, it gave the super users in Israel the ability to uh, know what was going on in the network in real time. So, And it allows them to not only um, see what's going on, but to intervene. And so this is, this is a pretty heavy stuff, but this is, this, is what computers, this is what computer technology can do. What about U.S. airport computers? You write that an Israeli company provided control software 
to scores of U.S. airports and Air Force bases. What is control software? Yeah, that was a, a, a software that was a company that was developed by a guy named um, Gazit. He was a former head of uh, Israeli military intelligence. And um, he, he was in charge of a company that, that ran operations, uh, lighting operations, and, and you know, how airports, uh, the functioning of, of airports with their, with their various lighting and, and uh, things on the ground. And uh, he was able to get this, even though he was, came from a small company, from a small country like Israel, they were, he was able to get this uh, software into American airports and military bases uh, across the country, around the world. In your essay, The Pentagon's Abandonment of Its Own People on 9-11, you ask the question, why was the FBI put in charge of the Pentagon site? Since the U.S. government claimed that 9-11 was an act of war, what kind of sense does this make? Well, it doesn't make any at all, which is why the question was, is asked. Um, you know, it, it's like the, the Pentagon is a military fortress, and it is the, the main fortress of the military in the United States. And in a press conference that, that evening on 9-11, uh, Rumsfeld pointed out that um, he had the Secretary of the Army speaking, and said that uh, at this point, I think it's fair to say that the fire is contained. This is about 6 o'clock at night on 9-11. And will shortly, if not already, be sufficiently controlled to allow entry into the building. That entry will be supervised by the FBI, who are in charge of the site, assisted by the fire departments that, that are present. And we in the Army side will support them as they go into the building. So the, the, the uh, complete control of the site, of the crash site, or whatever happened at the Pentagon, was under the control of the FBI. And this is, this is what happened all across the, the, the nation on 9-11, um, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania as well. Um, the, the crash site should have been under the jurisdiction of the uh, county coroner, a man named Wally, Wally Miller. And it was his, it was his obligation as the, as the coroner for Somerset County to be in charge of the, of the crash site, recover the bodies, the evidence, what have you. But again, there, when I met Wally... Um, he, he told me, one of the painters said, ask him what the FBI told you, Wally. And I asked him, what, what did the FBI tell you? And, and they told him, Wally, are you going to be a team player? And what that meant was, are you going to turn over the crash site to us? And he did. He turned the crash site over to the, the FBI. And they were in charge of all the, the collection of evidence and human remains, what have you. And Wally was uh, working at an at off-site location where he would meet the families. And so that meant that, you know, there was a lot of space for um, fraud because he was, he was then basically, as the, as the coroner, he would sign death certificates for bodies that he had never seen or for people he had never, he had never found or never seen. And so th this happened at the Pentagon as well. Now, why should the FBI, which is a, uh, a, civilian, a civil, part of the civilian government, be in charge of the investigation at the, at the Pentagon. If a, if a military plane crashes someplace, the military investigates it. The military has all kinds of investigations. Why, why do they not investigate their own, their own crash site on 9-11? Well, I, I submit that there, one of the main reasons is that the military would not have been part of the cover-up. They would have seen right away that there were not two large engines there. There, were, there was no evidence of a large Boeing aircraft. And they would have said something happened here, but it's not what they said happened. 
And for that reason, they had to be sidelined and given to the, the FBI. And, and as we know, the FBI has been involved in uh, fake terrorism for decades. And it seems like that's what happened on 9-11. Well, exactly. I mean, when you, when you uh, uh, mentioned uh, FBI being in charge of fake terror, I mean, the first thing that popped into my mind was the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center mm-hmm. and that Imad Salem that I think the FBI... Uh, used in order to stage the bombing, right? That's right. He was the Egyptian colonel who was used to as an informer, and he was the one who had, um, you know, been in charge of the operation in New Jersey that led to the bombing in 1993, and he had been recorded, you know, speaking on the phone uh, with an FBI, FBI handler, and it became clear, even the New York Times reported that the FBI had paid uh, Mr. Salem $1 million dollars for his testimony, which basically uh, fingered the uh, Muslim suspects and the blind sheikh and what have you, and these people were put away in jail for the rest of their lives. And, and Imad Salem disappeared into the witness protection program. But um, yeah, the FBI was involved in, in, in creating the, the, the explosion that uh, went off in 1993 at the World Trade Center basement. And with regard to the FBI um, being in charge of the investigation at the Pentagon and at Shanksville, uh, wasn't the FBI also in charge of uh, the uh, World Trade Center buildings? Oh, yeah. That, that for sure. Um, well, that, that's more legitimate because under their, the fact that it was a, a case of domestic of terrorism, the FBI is the agency that is supposed to investigate uh, that kind of thing like what happened at the World Trade Center. But the difference is that the Pentagon is a military site. It was uh, defined as an act of war. And it should have been not for the FBI to handle, but for the military to investigate themselves. Uh, But they failed to do that. What is LVI Services? Do you know who owns it? Yeah, LVI uh, stands for Lehigh Valley Industries, is a company that's headed by a guy named Burton Freed. And LVI was reported on September 13th, I believe it was, in a magazine called Engineering News and Report, I think it was called, uh, an engineering magazine, uh, that LVI had done extensive asbestos abatement work in the World Trade Center in the years prior to 9-11. And the owner, as I said, is is a man named Burton Freed. And Burton Freed, I think it's his brother-in-law, worked at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey in the architecture department and had access to the... uh, blueprints for the World Trade Center. What LVI is, um, is, is also involved in is prepping, prepping buildings for demolition. They often work with a company called CDI, Controlled Demolition Incorporated, that LVI would uh, prepare, the, prepare the structure uh, to receive the charges. So they would do the pre-prepping uh, a building for demolition. So the fact that they were reported to have worked in the World Trade Center prior to 9-11 is uh, very suspicious. I, I, I called the company on, uh, shortly after 9-11 and spoke to Burton Freed about this. And, and he said, no, no, it wasn't us. It was uh, another company, he said. And, but uh, it was very odd. Now, didn't LVI, according to what you've written, also uh, reportedly work for uh, the U.S. military and then all of those records disappeared? Yeah, that's a very strange thing. Um, I had found that LVI had received a, a research and development contract with the U.S. Army in the year 2000 for about $3 million. And um, 
I found it in the um, uh, government government website that has contracts. And what was peculiar is that uh, this contract and this connection between LVI and the, and the military and this contract um, has been deleted or is no longer found. And uh, when you when you look for the contract to contractor LVI for the year 2000, it says no records found. In a, a website called fedspending.org. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Exposing the Ongoing Cover-Up of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In your essay, The Peculiar Similarities Between 9-11 and the Assassination of RFK, you compare both crimes and even the assassination of President Kennedy. What are mm-hmm. some of these uncanny similarities? For instance, you point out that all three crimes were in effect a coup that radically changed American political history through violence. Well, yeah, there's no question about that. Um, uh, Bobby Kennedy was the continuation of his brother's legacy. Um, JFK was a, a very much a, a, a overt coup d'état, and and Bobby in '68 was uh, on his way to becoming the Democratic candidate for president, and he would have he would have become that, and probably would have won the election had he not been killed. Um, one of the most in, in, interesting things is that you have this connection of the um, family from Chicago, the Henry Crown family, which is a, a, a very big wealthy Zionist um, family that owns the, uh, the majority of the stocks of a company called uh, General Dynamics, which is a big military uh, industrial company, um, one of the biggest. And, and you have the fact that uh, Bobby Kennedy was killed at a hotel called the Ambassador Hotel in L.A. That hotel was owned by Henry Crown's uh, son-in-law, uh, Mayor Shine. And, and the, the thing is that when you look at the murder of Bobby Kennedy, one of the most peculiar things is that Bobby Kennedy did not exit through the lobby as he usually would, uh, but instead he was diverted and taken back into a pantry off the kitchen in the hotel uh, where the assailant, uh, Sirhan Sirhan, was waiting. Now, Sirhan Sirhan had been waiting in that pantry for like half an hour. So it's like what they did is they brought Bobby Kennedy was taken like a sacrificial lamb um, into the pantry where the assailant was waiting, who, who fired bullets at him. But these were not the lethal bullets. The lethal bullet that killed Bobby Kennedy was the bullet that entered his behind his right ear at his mastoid from a distance of about uh, an inch and a half. But it means that the hotel um, was allowing this strange person, is kind of like you know Palestinian young man, who was sweating profusely, they were letting this man just like hang out in the hotel kitchen for a half an hour while not very far away was the, you know, the candidate for the president of the United States speaking on a stage. It, it doesn't make any sense. But the thing about Mayor Shine and the Ambassador Hotel is that it has a long history of involvement with um, Jewish gangsters, people like Mickey Cohen and the Likud party, the Irgun party, Menachem Begin, what have you. So it's, it's a, uh, the venue, the place where the crime happened is very important. 
And then, of course, uh, when we're talking about the similarities with 9-11 and the ownership of the buildings, then who owned the, the World Trade Center? Exactly. The World Trade Center, all three towers that fell that day were owned by uh, Larry Silverstein, who had been the former national chairman of the UJA, United Jewish Appeal, Federation of New York City, which is the largest fundraiser for the state of Israel. Um, and you know, he, he, he obtained the ownership, the, the de facto ownership of the World Trade Center um, at the end of July 2001, uh, just a little bit more than a month before 9-11 happened. And not only that, Larry Silverstein was seemingly prepped for this operation in that he had, he had been maintaining weekly conversations every Sunday afternoon on the telephone with Benjamin Netanyahu, the current Prime Minister of Israel, who's also facing now criminal charges. Another uh, sort of uncanny similarity with the um, assassination of President John Kennedy, that he was actually on his way to the Trade Center in Dallas when he was mm -hmm. killed. Yeah, and what's interesting about this Henry Crown family is that the Henry Crown family is also connected to the 9-11 cover-up um, in that the... Uh, the paper, the first paper that, that that came out to explain what happened to the World Trade Center was written by a man named Bazant, a professor at Northwestern University, who's a Henry Crown professor at Northwestern. And he came out with this paper one day, two days after 9-11, uh, saying that basically the buildings collapsed because of the fire and the jet fuel, which is not possible. Um, and, and in the same way, um, Henry Crown is also connected to the man who led the FEMA investigation a man named Gene Corley, who ran the uh, building evaluation, you know, whatever investigation was done by these engineers who went and looked at the rubble. And Henry Crown was also involved in that his, his personal lawyer was the lawyer who worked on the Warren Commission, who was appointed to the Warren Commission, um, Albert Jenner, to determine whether there had been any conspiracy between uh, the actions of Lee Harvey Oswald or Jack Ruby. So this, this one family, again, this, this family, Henry Crown family, finds itself involved in 9-11, the Bobby Kennedy murder, and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. You know, what are the odds? Really? And then were there fall guys in all three crimes? Well, yeah, of course. There's Sirhan Sirhan, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Osama bin Laden. Um, those, are the, those are the fall guys. And it's interesting that the, the company head is now Lester Crown, Henry Crown's son. And he runs something called the Aspen Institute. He owns Aspen Mountain in Colorado. But he also has the Aspen Institute. And he was speaking uh, a couple years ago, and um, he talked about how his father, Henry Crown, had been asked by the government of Israel to obtain uh, a plant to, to build planes. This is back in, like, 1950, just after Israel became a state. And what Henry Crown did is that he went to Texas, I believe, and he bought an entire uh, World War II airplane production plant, dismantled it, shipped it to Israel, probably through Mexico, and that plant became the uh, Israel Aircraft Industries. Wow, that's really something. Well, it was illegal. It was also illegal because it was a violation of the Neutrality Act, what the United States had signed regarding, you know, the Middle East, but it was, it, he was, it was pretty audacious that he bought an entire airplane manufacturing plant and shipped it to Israel. 
Yeah, unbelievable. And then again, with the similarities between uh, both assassinations and 9-11, was organized crime involved with all three uh, crimes? Well, it is organized crime when you look at it. Um, but we, 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 we can't say for certain what uh, organized crime was definitely involved in the, in the John F. Kennedy murder. Uh, the Bobby Kennedy murder is, is not so clear, uh, any involvement in organized crime. But as I said, the Ambassador Hotel was owned by um, Mayor Shine, who is the son-in-law of um, Henry Crown, and that one of his main tenants in the hotel had been a man named Mickey Cohen. And Mickey Cohen had been a, a very big uh, West Coast gangster in, the, in this uh, Jewish mafia. And there were other people. But um, in, in 9-11, it would be wrong to point the finger at organized crime, meaning you know any sort of international organized crime. Well, what about the cleanup of Ground Zero? Were there uh, organized crime type companies involved in that or not? Well, there were there were reports about, you know, some local uh, mobsters having uh, taken trucks to uh, another dump site, you know, kind of like stealing a load of, of steel. Um, but the again, the uh, the big players in the cleanup were foreign companies. There were basically three foreign companies, Bovis Lendlease, Amec, and Turner. And um, the, the only American company was a comp company called Tully. And those, those three foreign companies were the companies that cleaned up the uh, places, the sites where the buildings actually fell, uh, North Tower, South Tower, and Building 7. But there's one company that's very interesting. It's called Amec. Amec was the, uh, the biggest company. It's called Assets Management and Engineering Consultancy. It's a British company. Works very closely with um, uh, British British Petroleum, and it's it's very uh, connected to the Rothschild family. And look, if you look at the Pentagon, for example, this company had done the renovation at the Pentagon at the section of the Pentagon that got hit that day, and then they got the cleanup contract afterwards. So they not only were there to prepare the site that got hit, but they were there to clean up afterwards and and making a lot of money in the meantime. And they also were responsible for the cleanup, I think, at the North Tower section um, at the World Trade Center. So it's like um, this Rothschild-controlled company um, played a very big role on 9-11. Well, that's very interesting. Your essay, Why Are So Many WTC First Responders Dying? How do you answer that? Well... That's a very good question because there are thousands of first responders who are dying from cancer and other awful diseases um, to this day. And more people are coming down with the sicknesses as we speak. It's because these people were exposed to the smoke. Um, it's often described as the dust, but that's not correct. The dust from the World Trade Center was, a, was a part of the event on the first day. After the first day, it was not really... a uh, an issue. But what, what remained an issue was the smoke that rose from the pile. And the smoke was this kind of light blue smoke like you'd see from an exhaust pipe of a, on a car. But this light blue smoke contained uh, unprecedented amounts of nanoparticles, which are very, very, very small particles. And these, these nanoparticles are extremely toxic to human health because they are so small that they pass through every barrier in the body until they until they penetrate the human cell and lodge themselves in the nucleus of the human cell where they, where they wreak damage on the system. 
um, so what what happened is that these people who were on the pile or working on the pile near the pile, or even the the people who lived around the pile, who were exposed to the smoke, are are coming down with these sicknesses, and it's not being discussed because um, the property of the fires that made these nanoparticles were that they were extremely hot, much hotter than anything that the official story can uh, conjure up. These nanoparticles are only produced in fires or chemical reactions that are hotter than the boiling point of the metal involved, the aerosol. So this fire raged, or these chemical reactions raged beneath the World Trade Center rubble for three months until Christmas of 2001. And so that meant that a lot of people were exposed to this smoke, and it is those people who are now um, getting very sick and dying. Do you have any idea how far this uh, thin blue smoke traveled from ground zero? Would it have traveled all over New York City, do you think, or is that known? Well, I think that it probably didn't travel very far because it was very hot and it went up. It was very, very hot. But we know that it it went outside of ground zero because the, the drum, the Davis drum, which measured the smoke, was on Varick Street about uh, several blocks north of the ground zero site, the rubble pile. And whenever the smoke blew through that drum, um, they could monitor the size of the particles and the nature of the particles in the smoke. This came from UC Davis, California. That's why it's called the Davis drum. And so that people who lived in that area, if they got uh, a a whiff of the smoke, they would be exposed. So it, it, it means that the people in lower Manhattan wherever the smoke blew, um, were at risk of being exposed to um, these nanoparticles in the smoke. And it, it's important that people understand the nature of the, the particle effect and the, the fires because this is a public health question. It has affected the lives of thousands of people in New York City. And the, the failure of the media to address the issue of what produces smoke and why the smoke was so toxic is basically part of the cover-up. Because if you ask the question, what could have created this, these, these extremely hot reactions, then you're dealing with something other than what we were told brought down the World Trade Center. And didn't Christine Todd Whitman tell everybody in New York City that it was safe to go out and breathe the air? Yes, yes. And um, she told the people of New York that the water is safe to drink and the air is safe to breathe, uh, which is uh, utterly false. It was not at all safe. Um, it, the area should have been treated like a, a toxic incinerator, and people should have been kept, you know, removed from the area. Um, but they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to alarm the public, and so it wasn't done. And when Professor Cahill, who ran the Davis Drum Project in New York, when he went out to New York in October, I think it was, uh, he was actually uh, met at the airport by two EPA officials, who asked him. Uh, who asked you to do this and who's paying for it? And, and he, was shocked. he was shocked to find that the EPA was really doing nothing to monitor the uh, health risks to the people of New York City. Christopher Boleyn, thank you. Well, thank you. It's uh, a pleasure to uh, talk about this book. I've been speaking with Christopher Boleyn. 
Today's show has been Exposing the Ongoing Cover-Up of 9-11. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He has lived and traveled extensively throughout the world, including the Middle East, where he studied the region's history and languages before earning a degree in history from the University of California with an emphasis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, Solving 9-11, The Articles, and The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. His newest book is Solving 9-11, The Articles, Volume 2. Visit his website at bolin.com. That's B-O-L-L-Y-N.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Say it's time that we live in G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? 